Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Today on the show, we have Michael Kropveld, and besides being a really nice guy, he is the founder and executive director of InfoCult, InfoSect, based in Montreal, Canada. He also serves on the board of directors of the International Cultic Studies Association, the ICSA, and as chair of the ICSA Conference Committee. And he's been involved in organizing the ICSA annual international conferences on cultic phenomena since the mid-1990s. And the next conference, actually, that will be an international conference, is going to be in Montreal next summer, summer of 2020. Since the founding of InfoCult in 1980, Michael has assisted thousands of former members and members of cults and new religious movements and other groups and their families, and he served as an expert witness on cult-related criminal and civil cases, which we will talk about, and is consulted regularly by mental health professionals and law enforcement agencies. He's an invited speaker worldwide and has appeared on many radio and television programs locally, nationally, and internationally. And he's co-authored books, and he has been awarded the 125 Commemorative Medal by the Government of Canada in recognition of significant contribution to compatriots, community, and to Canada. And in 2007, he received the Herbert L. Rosedale Award from the ICSA in recognition of leadership in the effort to preserve and protect individual freedom. Here he is now. Well, welcome, Mike Kropfeld, to the Indoctrination Show today. Uh, You have been in this field for many years, and you are quite an expert. And I wanted to be able to talk to you today to find out about your organization and the evolution of your organization and how you got involved in this work. And I know you do uh, court cases and work all over in different countries. And also I'm talking to you um, and you're in a different country right now. And I would love to just hear about how Canada or Montreal deals with this kind of issue, maybe in a different way than the U.S. does. So there are many different directions that we can go in. So why don't you uh, just start by introducing yourself? Uh, I'm Mike Kropfeld. I'm the executive director and founder of InfoCult, which is based here in Montreal. Uh, and uh, we're known in French by the, the name InfoSec because uh, we function in Quebec, which is uh, a French province. Uh, most of my work, actually, and most of the people I tend to deal with you know, are French-speaking, uh, and, and as well as the fact that I do deal with people from outside the province and outside the country as well who look for information. I guess... I've been involved in this area for over 40 years. Uh, It started in 1977 with uh, the experience of a close friend of mine who got involved with Unification Church, known to by many people in that era as the Moonies. Uh, It was the dramatic rescue kidnapping uh, of our friend by friends and his family that got garnered a lot of publicity. The reason we got a lot of publicity is also a close friend of ours who was involved in, in pulling out our friend is a journalist and wrote a six-part series about our adventure of getting our friend out of the group. This was the era where, you know, and I guess going back, our knowledge about Unification Church or cults was limited to having read a few articles and having spoken to somebody, I recall, in California who 
was very earnest and said to us, uh, your, your, your friend's in a cult. He's being brainwashed. The only way to get him out is to kidnap the programmer. That was the limit of, I would say, the information we had at that point. And we ended up following that advice, though we didn't hire anybody initially when we went through this deprogramming of our friend. We, uh, family and friends, kidnapped the individual by ourselves and brought him to a room and where we tried to talk to him. The fact that he wouldn't talk to us or have anything to say led us to finally engage somebody to help deprogram him. Uh, and that was a deprogrammer at that time who has subsequently become a lawyer and actually operates in California, Ford Green. It was this story and the publicity around the story which got myself and other friends involved in trying to do more because when the series of articles came out, this was kind of the first major story about cults in Canada. And so it elicited a, a, a very large, I'd say, scale response from public individuals looking for information, wanting help. Predominantly at that time, it was parents calling about their kids. Uh, when we're talking about kids, it's 18, 20s, 18 to 26 or so. So funds decided to start something on a volunteer basis to try to respond to this uh, kind of like outpouring of requests that we received. This was all voluntarily initially in 1978 and 79. Uh, and I do want to say that the series of articles uh, subsequently were written into a book by the journalist who was Josh Freed uh, called Moonweb's Journey into the Mind of a Cult and subsequently made into a major motion picture called Ticket to Heaven. Of course, this dates myself. I'd say probably one of the first major motion picture films done on this kind of an area, which garnered Pretty wide-scale distribution, not only in North America, but outside of North America as well. Coming back, I guess, to Montreal, a number of us decided that because there was such a, a seeming need for help and information, we wanted to set up something on a more permanent basis. And we looked around for organizations and groups that could help in terms of funding us to start up some kind of a center. It was in early on, uh, we had support for actually from the Jewish community in Montreal. Uh, part of it, I think, was the recognition at that time uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, that there was an overrepresentation, or what seemingly was the case, an overrepresentation of Jews in these so called cultic movements at that time. There was an interest uh, on their side to get involved and do something. Uh, and we started up a center that was housed in the Hillel Benebrith Hillel Foundation, which not only catered to just the Jewish community, but what basically offered services to the community at large. And the, our organization uh, operated there for the first 10 years uh, until we became totally independent in 1990 and set up our own operation here where we are now. I'm skipping over a lot for sure because there's a lot of information. If you look at the whole issue from where I look at it now, where we were at that time, it was based on our experiences with our friend and I would say a limited amount of information that we had at that time, which kind of funneled us into a certain direction of viewing this issue. And I would say not a totally black and white kind of vision of it, but I would say kind of a very kind of closed perception of like feeding into a lot of the, I think, preconceived notions that existed at that time, that cults were bad, they brainwashed people, etc. At the same time, even when we operated, we were still, even though we were not, let's say, as I say, neutral in our approach, 
we did have contact with people who did have different points of view. And one of the goals that we had on early on was to develop a library, a documentation center that would house information on this subject. And that's something that we've always kind of maintained and it's grown. And we house presently at this time, probably one of the largest collections, I'd say, in North America, which is also very unique because it's a collection that's not just in English, but it's in French with also documentation and materials in a smattering of other languages as well. At the same time, as I say that, I mean, it's, I guess in this area, it's not hard to be unique because there aren't really that many places that collect. So I do want to qualify that. But at the same time, as I think our collection is quite unique because it's also open to the public. Uh, we do act, let people come in and do research. Early on, as a side note, it was interesting. We did get a lot more, let's say, you know, high school students uh, coming in to do research. This was pre-internet. So where the documentation only existed in hard copy. Uh, these days, the, the, re the researchers who come in or people who come in to do research are predominantly, let's say, graduate or postgraduate students who are looking for primary source information. Most high school students are either calling up or downloading stuff off the internet or our website. Yeah. So I don't see too many high school students anymore. Yeah. Uh, but I, one of the things that from early on, I want to say one of the goals was to collect information, primary source information, and from different points of view, even though our views did not necessarily coincide with some of the collections or materials we had, we were open to collecting as much as possible, as well as like hearing what other people had to say. It leads to an interesting side note, because this area has, and it still, still exists today uh, in many places, is very polarizing, which is that people either have a pro or seemingly con kind of view of the issue in a sense that people are often viewed as either you're either a pro or an anti-cultist terms which i find very limiting and i tend to encourage people to stay away from these what i call what clifton would call thought 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 stopping cliches because it really doesn't help you understand the diversity that exists within even those kind of let's say terms that people bandy about but even early on i think to demonstrate how close-minded some of the people were at that time is that we had a reading list. And this is in the early 80s. I probably about 121 books, if I recall the number exactly. And I think two of the books on our reading list were by David Bromley, who uh, people didn't really kind of appreciate if they were kind of opposed to the cultic groups. And we had somebody on our, on our mailing list who wrote back and said, how can you have this kind of material on your reading list? And if you continue to kind of put this kind of material out, I will no longer deal with you. And effectively, that person no longer dealt with us because of two out of 121 books on our reading list that we didn't like. It tried to kind of, unfortunately, I think symbolizes some of the problems with, within this area if you're trying to really look at the phenomena and understand it from different perspectives, is people are not, not always open to listening or hearing what other people have to say and tend to view it as like you either have my view or you are somehow an apologist if you're not opposed or anti-cult enough. And for the other side, you have people who tend to view any criticism or critique of movements as obviously being somebody who's totally ignorant and anti all these new kind of movements. I think the reality in 
in my perspective and our organization's perspective is often the reality exists between the two extremes. Yeah, and I've I've had that experience just with some of the guests on this podcast that if they are kind of mid middle of the way, kind of seeing it from a different perspective or a kind of more distant perspective or a, uh, looking at it kind of mm, sociologically, that's something that a lot of people have trouble with because they they want you to be as upset as they are about it, or they want you to be able to see that there isn't as much danger in it as they see it. But that becomes more cult-like that, you know, where you feel like you have to believe a certain way, you have to approach this a certain way. People are always looking for a simple answer. Is it a cult? Yes or no. Is it good or is it bad? Now, realistically, I wish life was so simple that you could actually do that. You're talking about people, organizations. The reality is things are much more nuanced and gray than most people would like to, I think, believe or realize. Mm-hmm. And that's why I say the evolution of our, our own thinking here in mind has changed over the years because we had a much more kind of closed kind of view. And to give you an example, something I probably, I wouldn't do today is our organization in the 80s would you know, get people together, volunteers, and we went and demonstrated sometimes when groups tried to do kind of programs in the city of Montreal, which is something I wouldn't do today, just because it at that time reflected a kind of an image that we had that everybody involved in X or Y group were all kind of controlled to the same level and were all being harmed. The reality is that wasn't the case then, it isn't the case now. You can't make these kind of general assumptions. At the same time, what appears to be in a very kind of soft approach, I don't want to take away from the fact that we deal with a lot of situations where people are being harmed. And that's a reality. The fact that people are being harmed does not mean by extension that the group is all evil and all dangerous. When I talk to people, I often say, you can have a good experience in a so-called bad group and a bad experience in a so-called good group to try to demonstrate that you want to look at groups on a one-by-one basis and individuals within them on a one-by-one basis. And individuals, as we know and you know too, are complex. And there's a whole baggage of history that comes with everyone in every family. So to assume that everybody's the same and everybody's going to be impacted the same in any one group is very rare. I say very rare because I always start with the premise that anything is possible. Is it true? Is another question. Mm, right, right. Uh, it's very good to be able to do that kind of research. And it is true also that there are people who are kind of on the lower rung of an organization that have no idea what's happening as you get higher and higher up. They don't know what's happening behind the scenes. They ha- they're not privy to it yet. You know, so yeah, people's experiences are going to be very, very different. And also because some people are going to be more sensitive to the environment that they're in and others are going to be able to kind of emotionally or spiritually defend against it um, in a different way. I'm curious about groups in Montreal or Quebec in general, just maybe some groups that people are not familiar with, haven't heard of here. Uh, you see, the problem with talking about specific groups is then leading, you know, do you, do you consider these groups harmful or these groups, so let's say, you know, problematic? We have a host of like, like I think everywhere, individual kind of churches or small churches led by pastors, actually two or three now in the courts over the last number of months for issues of allegations of abuse, physical, sexual, financial abuse uh, of their members. 
And so that's going on. And I think that happens in different parts of the world as well. We have smaller groups, which is also, I think, one of the things that we recognize over the last 20 odd years or so is that in the past, you were tend to deal with, let's say, in the early years with mostly international or major organizations. These days, you tend to deal with more regional or smaller groups that are not necessarily on that scope. And so that the situation changes, you know, in terms of locally and that individual groups, you know, exist everywhere. Uh, and so that we deal with the same thing, like healers, channelers, you know, you've you got people who claim to be and in, in satanic groups, occult organizations, you've got them all here as well. The difference being is that many of them operate in French versus operating in English. You know, so some of what is interesting also when you look at Quebec, it's almost seen as like kind of a, a staging ground or stopping off, stopping off grounds for groups, let's say, who may start here or start in French-speaking Europe who come here and then decide to move into America and English-speaking North America versus sometimes groups that start in English-speaking North America, come here and then move on to the French-speaking world. And then let's say start translating materials and becoming more, let's say, international in scope. So we have a lot of the similar groups. We have a lot of individual groups, as well as we have, in terms of we get calls from families all over just because sometimes there's family members who have come to this province involved in a group and they're from somewhere else and the family called. I just wanted to get back on one thing, actually. You, you triggered a kind of thought that I had when you were talking about you said different levels of experience and involvement in a group. For people who remember the Order of the Solar Temple, besides the fact it was group, the group was different in the sense it, it, it recruited and brought people in through slowly through different levels in the sense you had to be invited in you know, to the different levels. It was an, an interesting demonstration that when the mass murder suicides occurred, there were a majority of the membership were not aware of what was going on. They were involved under kind of, as you were saying, the outskirts of the organization and had no idea what was happening on the inner circle. At the same time, the example you gave is also reflective of the fact that some people are just coming into an organization and moving towards, one would say, the center and becoming very enthusiastic, excited, and full of you know fervor about being involved. Whereas you may have some other people who just remain on the margins. And you have other people who are on the process of moving out and away from the organization. So all of these differences will obviously have an impact on what level of harm or no harm, any harm the person may have because of their involvement. Right, right. And I think if you don't mind talking a little bit about Solar Temple, because I was actually going to bring that up. And for people who haven't heard about that organization and what happened, that would be great. What happened is they were involved in what are called three transits, or what is it, murder-suicides. The initial ones happened here, actually, in Quebec, north of Montreal, and in Switzerland. They, you know, that's where the terminology becomes interesting because obviously people in the group would not believe that they were committing suicide. They, they believed they were in transit towards the planet Sirius. Sirius. And once the first suicides occurred, there were two subsequent ones. The first one in 94, the second one in 95, and the third one in 97. The third one in 97 occurred also here in Quebec in a place called saint de la parade and, uh, sorry, Saint, there wasn't was another place. It was in Quebec, but uh, the, the name of the town was wrong. Uh, Saint Anne de la Parade is where they had their farm here in Quebec. But it was an organization that was very close. Uh, as I said, they recruited 
by you know running sessions that were open to a larger number of people, and from there they, they would pick the people they thought were prime candidates to move in. It was also an organization that did have people such as there was the mayor of the town of Richelieu here, there were journalists, there there were people that generally, as the case, were very bright and let's say upwardly mobile. That's another problem that many people have, you know, even when you look at the case that's going on now with Nexium, is how do anybody who's bright and intelligent get caught up in groups which seem from the outside so extreme and, and bizarre? Because the events that occurred at the Solar Temple led to investig- you know, kind of parliamentary commissions and studies in European countries, and which led to the eventual formation of the French government ministry, Mivilids, uh, though it was not called that at the beginning, and the government center or the, that was created in Belgium by a parliamentary, a parliamentary kind of center called the Siasun. Anyway, all of these are long names, which are very you know, kind of normal for European, French European to have these long names, but acronyms, which is hard to, to explain. Uh, but Quebec, actually, interestingly, since there was two of these murder-suicides that occurred here in Quebec, it, the only kind of really report that was done, and it's interesting, was a coroner's report. It didn't lead to any parliamentary commission, didn't lead to further studies or need to implement anything like occurred in Belgium. And, but that's also interesting in, in the sense of like how countries react to this phenomena. And I think countries react differently based on a variety of factors, their history, uh, their culture, their religion. Uh, and also the history of dealing with, let's say, so-called totalitarian or extreme movements, which are factors, I think, which lead to countries either deciding to do something or not. For Europe, uh, a lot of the phenomena is still kind of described as movements that are totalitarian. And totalitarianism for a lot of Europeans kind of equals Nazism of the past which elicits a response, kind of, I say, sometimes a knee-jerk reaction to do something about it. Countries like France, for example, which have a history of being more interventionist or dealing more, I would say, aggressively or confrontationally with problems is very different from, let's say, a North American model, which has much more of a laissez-faire approach to dealing with situations. It's interesting to, to look at that because I think that people often like to look when they're concerned about the cult phenomena to look at countries which are more aggressive in terms of approach and want their own countries to do it. But you have to recognize countries deal with things differently based on their laws as well. And then ultimately, depending on how a country does you know, or doesn't do anything, one has to evaluate, well, how effective is it? If you're actually going to do something, what are you planning on doing? And has it been well thought out? Sometimes realistically, I think governments don't necessarily think out things too in depth. You got to run for government again in another four years. So, you know, to do long-term planning that may take 15 or 20 may not get you elected in the next election. I just generally to state that myself and our organization has not been very in favor or supported the notion of implementing new laws vis-a-vis this area. Uh, generally, you feel there's plenty of laws on the books. Is there a willingness sometimes to implement laws? That may be a question we can raise. Cases that are going on now, uh, they're being brought on charges of uh, trafficking, financial you know, exploitation, sexual or physical abuse, fraud. So, I mean, and that's you know, what I think and how I think that these situations should be dealt with. 
Right. So when we're talking about governments and we're talking about laws, I know that uh, you've been involved in some court cases. Those are always difficult. It's something that I've been able to avoid so far, but <laughs> so far, uh, because I know there's a whole way that you need to operate in the courtroom that, you know, takes some training and, um, and it can be a very stressful time. But I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about some of the court cases you've been involved in. Most of them have been either youth protection. I mean, I, I that's mo many of the cases I haven't done. Like I always say, tons of cases. I tend to have the view of like you want to avoid if you're going to bring in experts having a battle of experts. If you have a good enough case, I'm willing to work with the lawyer in terms of preparing, you know, the questions to ask the witnesses. And if you got if you have a good enough case, like I tell lawyers, then let the story tell itself and. I think the judge will get a good enough picture of what's going on. In the cases where I have worked, it's either been not as an expert on a group, because I don't consider myself an expert as a legal expert. Term expert sometimes is bandied about a little too much. You know, I would consider myself knowledgeable about the area. Expertise, sometimes people like that term because it assumes that the person knows everything. Yeah, I'm knowledgeable. I have opinion. I have a position based on the experiences that I've gone through. So many of the cases I've gone through is basically testify in terms of, as they say, almost at the end of a case to put the framework around what's been presented. So in some of the cases I've been involved with, I don't even know what the case is all about in terms of like, I may know the group and I've heard about it, but I don't know the details. And so the questions I suggest the lawyers ask me is ask me about how the group function. Why would a member do X or Y thing or not do X or Y thing? And ask questions based on the information or evidence that they've already presented will help maybe clarify more to the judge an understanding of how and why something happened. Uh, I also in some of the more cases that were well-known, one case that was very well-known in the past here was where I worked with children, testified for Children's Aid, which is in Ontario, dealing with a group that was head, headed by Rock Moses, Maurice, Rock Moses Terrio, group known as the Antill Farm Kids by some people, where there was some pretty extreme physical and sexual abuse that went on within the organization, and the kids were pulled out. It was an interesting case in the sense that uh, it was being held in Ontario, which is an English-speaking province. The group were all French-speaking. So the law allows people to have, let's say, testify in their own language. So because the case was going to be in French, everyone who was involved or brought into the case, stenographers, lawyers, etc., all had to be able to speak French. As it turns out, what happened is the group leader and none of the members actually even showed up during the whole case. So the whole case, they just didn't bother. Children were taken away from the group, put into foster care, and the mothers and the leader never showed up in case in, in the case at all. It was uh, historically an interesting case because it was one, one of the groups that was, say, uh, probably one of the more extreme cultic organizations or cult groups that, that existed in this province was one of the first early ones. I started in the 70s and carried over into the 80s. That was one of the cases I was brought in. Other ones have either been, you know, youth protection where kids have been pulled out of groups. Uh, some of them I can't mention, but they're all sad, fascinating because uh, working how the justice system works. Sad because uh, you're dealing with situations where children have been abused, uh, situations where their parents, who normal situations would be the ones to protect the kids, 
and uh, other situations I've worked in, which have been the uh, custody battles, where you have whether there was one person who left the group and then fighting for custody, or there was a divorce, and yet one of the couple became a member of a group and wanted custody, and which caused conflict. And there was one case. Well, I mean, the problem is because there are custody youth protection cases, it's not much actually I can tell you about. But like others just say that generally when people call, I, I encourage them to, you know, prepare their case based on the witnesses rather than looking for like, is it a cult? Yes or no? Because that, that really won't go anywhere as far as I'm concerned. And I think it's irrelevant in terms of court because, first of all, there's no legal definition of the word cult. And people often assume, which is interesting, because I'll get calls from people because they're going to court. And they're looking for somebody, to, uh, myself, obviously, because they're calling me uh, to come and testify that Group X or Y is a cult. And I say, well, you know, part of it is, is realistically, is I go into court or you will go and you say X or Y group is a cult. What do you expect the judge to say? Oh, it's a cult. Take your kids and leave. No, it's going to ask you what's going on. What is the behavior? What is the problem with the organization? But people have, and I think a lot of it is because of the imagery, is that Cults are bad and dangerous, so obviously I just go tell the judge it's a cult. You know, the reality is obviously much more complex and nuanced. Though it just reminded me of people who didn't who didn't like my nuanced approach. You know, they also have been confronted by people who don't want. Which is fine because, like you know, I think the reality is is once you have a position and you, and you announce it, you know, you're obviously not going to have everybody agree with you. You know. That would, that would be disconcerting if everybody agreed with you. You know, that'd be, I think, a real problem. But the, the reality is, is that people, you know, have a hard time with nuance. Right. Yeah. For some people, it feels like a betrayal. You know, you're sort of letting down, uh, you're not keeping up your part of the fight. But that's not true because you're, you're being just as active, if not more so. But also, I think because you're not a polarizing figure, you can gather more people to your message in, in a more open way. I think that's the, re- I, plus there's always been a kind of contradiction sometimes I feel. It's like, it's like if I look at you as member of X or Y group who's in a cult, it's like, I don't want anything to do with you. I think you're evil. You're a bad person. But all of a sudden the next day, if I found out you're an ex members, oh, Rachel, I love you. You're fantastic. There's something wrong here. And I guess p- part of the premise to me is like, you want to treat people the way you want to be treated, which is like, you know, part of it is it doesn't cost you anything initially to give someone the benefit of the doubt. It's not like I'm getting involved in a, an intense relationship or an agreement with you. I'm starting a process which says, fine, let me see if it can work. You know, and we could say, and sometimes you take small steps. And then you may recognize that the person isn't being upfront with you and honest, but you may also realize that they are being upfront and honest. And they don't fit the stereotyped image of what you had in your mind of a so-called cult member. Some people are really kind of entrenched and have devoted so much of their life and the difficulty of saying, maybe it's not exactly what I thought. Maybe there is a nuance. I think that can be very difficult. Not always easy to reassess, you know, and I go through that and I've gone that through the years. Do I think what I'm doing is right? Do I agree with everything or position? Or do I have to reflect and think about it? I guess I would say I'm more comfortable with having probably more questions now than I did when I first started than the answers. Because at the beginning, when I first started, things were very clear <laughs> in the sense of it appeared like, oh, here are the bad groups and here are the good groups or here are the good guys and here are the bad guys. 
It's almost like the old time Westerns, you know, it was clear because the good guys wore white hats and the bad guys wore the black hats. Right. Yeah. It's funny. It reminds me of an expression of people who say, you know, in this field of therapy that uh, when I was new to therapy, I couldn't handle someone uh, challenging my expertise. And now I'm fine with it because now I know what I don't know and what I still need to learn and I'm open to it. Um, I wanted to go back to something you were talking about also about um, with some of the cases that you've dealt with where there's a family system involved and the parents have quote unquote, kind of let this happen to their children, because I know it's a multi-layered issue. Um, it's reminding me many years ago, because there's a lot of media attention that comes to these kinds of stories. And I was on Larry King, uh, which is not saying, you know, puff, puff, I went home and made my kids lunches and cleaned out the guinea pig cage. You know, it's not like it went to my head. But I, I found that it was a children of God show. And a lot of the, um, the people on the show talked about how they were raised in an environment where anything was allowed to happen to them and there was no safeguard and the parents kind of got in the way of them being able to be safe. And I, and I remember saying something like, yeah, you, when you're raised in an environment where your parents are not checking in the closet and under your bed to make sure there are no monsters, but they're actually letting the monsters in. And, but I know that it's not something they would have done otherwise. And so parents are, are compromised a lot of the times, just like the kids are. So I was curious if you could talk about that. Yeah, that's, that's a really tough one. Cause I remember, you know, cause that raises the question. It was a conference I was at where you had uh, children of members who were there, and you know, and they didn't like to hear about people talking about brainwashing, you know, they didn't want to hear that the parents' excuse was I was brainwashed because, you know, uh, I can't use the word she said. I remember very clearly. It was like, I don't give a F about this because basically you were my parents. You were supposed to take care of me. Point final, you know, period. And that's the bottom line. And that's the, the difficulty. I think which raises also the question is, yeah, you, you fall under the spell of someone. But can you totally, you know, distance yourself from responsibility for your actions? And I don't think so. I think there's, you know, basically, obviously, extenuating circumstances in every situation. But ultimately, these are really tough times. And it's also tough, not only tough for the kids coming out of these kind of environments, but also for the parents coming to terms with, like, you know, how to let this happen? You know, how do I now kind of get a relationship going with my kids again? You know, and these are very difficult kind of situations depending on what the children had to go through and as a children of god obviously at the heyday or the real kind of let's say extreme period in the history of the movement where parents were encouraged and a whole encouragement to have sexual relationships with kids it obviously had a very you know to me a detrimental impact on a lot of the kids as well as i think on a lot of the parents afterwards because ultimately in situations like that the guilt is like why didn't i say anything why didn't they say no? Because realistically, most of the people you deal with, and you probably have it too, inside there was that gut feeling that says there's something wrong going on. But people just, they just froze and they didn't do anything. It's reminiscent of a documentary that was done on people's, about People's Temple. And it was a mother talking about how her daughter was being punished by the Board of Education, which is with a wooden paddle that Jim Jones used for, for punishing in front of the, the, 
the whole group. First of all, her daughter was being punished because she has spoken to uh, non-members of the group in the school she was going to. And she was being punished with the Board of Education with this wooden paddle. And the mother's recounting how this is going on. And she's going, this is terrible. How can I allow this to go on? You know, it's horrific. And she's describing how terrible it was for her. And then when it ended, her daughter's taking the microphone and saying, thank you, Dad. Now I understand. Now I learned my lesson. And all the other parents around her are going, isn't it wonderful how much Jim Jones cared? What you see in situations like that and the dilemma for people after is if your whole environment supports what is not, in a sense, one would say a normal behavior, but becomes the norm because everyone around you is doing it. And it was another example recently. I think there was a former member of a polygamous group and responded to a question I think she was being asked by someone. And she was being asked, when you were in the group, didn't you find it strange that you know, young girls of 14, 15, 16 were being married to older men of 40 or 50? Her response was, I think, very illuminating. So she said, no, it was normal. And so that's the hard thing, I think, for when people come out you know, who've grown up in these kind of environments who spend a lot of times of their life in it, is reconnecting with a world that is very different from what they consider normal. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. And I think also there, there are a lot of parenting issues for people who uh, started raising their kids within a cult at, with those social norms within that group, which were usually quite abnormal or abusive or too permissive or whatever it was, uh, and not also in line with what's developmentally appropriate and kids being treated like little adults. And so people coming out, parents coming out, need to learn how to be parents, but especially people who I think were born and raised in groups because they, they've never had it modeled for them. And so, you know, they, they benefit a lot from reading parenting magazines and going to parenting classes and really learning kind of from scratch how to do it and um, what their role is as a parent. Interesting you said that because what you said just reminded me of a TV program I was involved with where a former member, I think, described kind of accurately what went on, in, in, not in every group, obviously. She said, in the group she was in, she said, the kids have to behave like adults, and the adults have to behave like children. In the sense of, like, you cannot be a kid in, in some of these groups, because whatever, you can't have toys, you can't play, you've always got to be focused. But the parents become like little kids, you know, dependent on the authority. So in reality, in these kind of environments that are extreme like that, the parents don't have parental control or you know over their own kids. It's the leadership. And so the parents become like the children, and the leader basically tries to form, form train the kids to behave like adults. I love that. Yeah. And there was actually, and also talking about children of God, which I think kind of signifies, I think, or symbolizes why you can't just put everything or everyone in one group into one basket. And similarly, I was on a program where uh, there were two former members of Children of God. One was a guy and one was a female. And the guy talked first about how he'd been involved in the Children of God and basically, you know, summarized he had a wonderful experience and he had no problem leaving and everything was great. The woman started talking about how horrific her experience was and she, you know, she ended up leaving the group when she was pregnant with her third kid because they were starting to talk about having sexual relationships with the kids. If you watch a program like that or you hear two different testimonials, often people will sit there and say, who's telling the truth or who's lying? 
The reality in many cases, and it was signified by this program, is that both were telling the truth. Because when they actually came back after the intermission, uh, the questions led to the young person or the man explaining how he'd been involved at the initial stages or developmental stages of the children of God, when basically it was pretty much a Christian evangelical group. And there was no real kind of like discussions about sex, et cetera. And he was in for a very short time, three or four months. So the impact and his experience was very positive. Whereas she was involved in what we say the middle stages of the organization, eight years, had three kids, or was pregnant with the third when she left, from different men, and her experience was very different. So often that's why I think when you talk about nuance, you have to be careful that you can't put every you know group and every person into the same box because the experiences vary depending on time, location of its international group, and a variety of other factors. But this was, I think, interesting because it was one of the few times, I think, that people actually could hear that both people were telling the truth versus having to figure out who's lying, you know, which is often the case that people figure if somebody gives you a positive testimony of their involvement in what is seen as a controversial group, people often jump to the conclusion they must be lying because they're brainwashed. Right. I think it's interesting, too, when you, when you talk about really any subject, uh, because most things are nuanced. It really is usually a both and rather than an either or situation, although it would make it a lot easier in the courts, uh, in the media and all of that to make it more black and white, which does happen that people do take out the gray. And that's that's unfortunate because a lot does exist in the gray. Uh, but it's also true. I know with going back to the Children of God and there are other groups like it there. I, I remember talking to a man who um, had uh, a lot of guilt. He was the brother of girls who had been sexually abused and he was kept from being able to protect them. Uh, so there, there are other people who might not have incurred abuse themselves, but just by needing to passively allow their loved ones to be harmed, that they're left really racked with an, an kind of an overwhelming amount of guilt. Definitely agree. I mean, it's it's so it's so difficult to to just kind of look at a situation because there's some people come out of it exactly, uh, you know, able to incredible have experienced an incredible amount of you know negative, you know, har like harm in terms of like, physical, sexual, having seen things, having lost out in terms of you know life experiences, contacts, you know, but and are able. It's amazing because. I think one of the important things is that people don't recognize when they come out is they have also a great potential to heal and move on with their life. Uh, obviously, in some cases, you know, they will have a very difficult time of coping and integrating back into, let's say, an experience, a life outside the group. But it just kind of leads to what you're saying, too, is like, you got to look at situations on a one-by-one -one basis, you know. You can look at the group and say the group maybe is overridingly harmful, you know, in terms of what they're doing. But nonetheless, the experiences within it may vary and not everyone will necessarily be harmed. And some people can come out with a positive experience and one should, and one cannot sit there and deny that people have a positive experience in a group that you might find harmful or bad. Right. I'm curious about a couple more things. And then, of course, if there are other stories that you want to share, please feel free, but I'm curious at what trends that you're noticing and also why this subject matters to you to this degree. 
So if we can start with trends that you might be seeing, modern trends. Well, well, a lot more, I guess, is like, well, a lot more obviously in the past is like situations which are like kind of uh, people involved in, one would say, in quotation mark groups, but not being in a group because they're connected through, let's say, internet or they're buying into, you know, it's podcasts by a group leader and they're kind of, what was I get into that cult mentality, you know, and conspiracy, conspiracies, you know, extreme beliefs, but not necessarily meeting physically with people. And sometimes there is that physical kind of connection at later date, but increasingly you, you, we're getting calls and we're meeting people who are concerned about someone they care about who are connected to groups kind of, I want to say on the internet. No, that's, there. Plus, over the last number of years, it's I think a lot of custody issues. You know, you a lot of people coming out of groups, you know, uh, who are you know in custody battles because they were married and one or the other became involved, and so there's issues about the kids. Uh, a fair number, I'd say, of law like born and raised, where if you're looking probably 10, 15 years ago, we didn't get that many. The harder ones, and this has always been there, I guess, since day one that I started, is the groups that are more problematic for individuals are the ones where they're either shunned, you know, or contact is completely cut off with family, friends, in a sense, their past, the minute they leave or if they're kicked out. That is, you know, more and more, I think, I guess I would say we've seen more and more of those kind of, let's say, inquiries or calls that we're getting. And then a lot of smaller groups. Well, yeah. You got a lot of more of these like people popping up, you know, kind of selling the miracle uh, kind of training or the miracle, you know, healing that they can offer. In a sense, I think it responds to the fact that increasingly, because times are not getting easier, they're getting more and more stressful, more and more difficult. I think the need to want to believe that it's like, you know, it's buying like a lottery ticket, I'm going to win, you know, that there is some simple formula or magical recipe that if I can find it, everything will become okay. The difficulty with that is it asks you to suspend a certain amount of belief and thinking process and become dependent on someone else. That's where the problem kind of arises. And so we're seeing more of that coming in. And uh, fortunately, at the same time also, and not to just play on the negative, because there's always problems. I spend a lot of time talking to people. So I explain who we are, what we do, how we approach this issue, and ultimately, when people call, the question to me is, what do you want to know and how is it going to help you? you know, if I told you the group is a cult, what would that mean to you? And what would you do? And if I told you if it wasn't a cult, would now everything be okay? The reality is when I say that, you know, if I told you it wasn't a cult, would everything be okay? People will go, no, because I'm concerned about X, Y, Z. Okay, let's deal with the X, Y, Z. It's important to know about the group, etc. But it's also important to know strategically what do you want to do and is it feasible? And irrespective of the group or the problem, you know, to me, I, I look a lot more at strategy. What's your goal? Is it feasible and achievable? No? Well, then maybe let's look at something else. If you want to do X or Y kind of approach, what are the pros and cons? And let's focus on the cons. Because everybody can live with, if it works out, everybody's happy. You know? But if it doesn't work out, what are the possible implications? You know? Are you going to approach? So I do a lot of that kind of work in situations people call and getting them to understand, you know, what works, what doesn't work, why, 
and looking at like what they hope to achieve. And at the same time, kind of a, a suggestion to a lot of families is also important that has come up and I think others use it. It's not my kind of like invention or something to use is what, what would you do or what kind of relationship would you want to have with your loved one if they don't change, if they don't leave the group that you're concerned about? Right? Because ultimately the question is, is like some families, look, I've had families that say, I'm going to give my kid an ultimatum or my loved one an ultimatum. And I say, well, I can't give you an exact figure, but I say it's probably pretty close to 100%. It's not going to work. But if you're comfortable living with the results of your actions and what you're deciding, you know, because some families, they're fed up, don't want to deal with it anymore because it's having a negative impact on their life, other family members. You know, is it going to help the person to leave? Probably not. But will it help the family to make, make them feel better and easier to move on? But in other cases, it's a question of what kind of relationship do you want to have with your loved one if they don't change? You know, and that's something that I can't answer because I always say to people, it's like, look, you know, you've heard it from many people. Advice is cheap. You know, everybody's got good ideas. And I may have good ideas too for people, but ultimately it's not me who's going to live with their decisions. They are. I go home, I forget about the situation. They, if they implement whatever they decide to do, they're the ones who are going to live with the results of their, you know, actions, not me. Always important for them to be conscious of like, because many families, you might have that too, have talked to a lot of people about what to do. And friends and other family members are always good at telling somebody, you should do this, you should do that. But, you know, the reality is it may be good advice, it may not be, but even if it's good advice, you can't implement it, you're not comfortable with it, why do it? You know, not going to look too... Right. Right. All, also, uh, all the while knowing and having a sense about what it's like for a family to have this entity, to have a group, to have a leader, to have a controller standing in between you and your child, and that there isn't something you can do about it, or not yet, or maybe not ever. And what that what that does to a family, what that does to parents. It can be very difficult. I mean, I mean, I don't want to discount like the, the amount of harm and stress. And people have called, you know, sleepless nights, anxiety that they've gone through because of situations and sometimes situations which I would totally agree with that are, are horrendous. But the options sometimes and in many cases are limited. People are looking for that magical kind of formula that, that what, what can I say or what can I do magically that will make the person change? Realistically, it's very rarely there. And, but the, the kind of situations that families go through can be very difficult. And when I talk families, I want to be clear. It's like, not just like, you know, mother, father, son, daughter, but you've got husband, wife, wife, husband. You're getting situations, grandparents calling because they don't have access to their grandkid. And sometimes I'm getting kids calling because of their parents that are involved in groups. You're really seeing a real melange mixture compared to when we started it, like as I mentioned previously. When we started, it was basically parents calling about the kids, you know, really 18, 26, kind of year old. Now it's, it's one would say it's all over the map. Plus, you know, you're getting professional agencies involved, you know, professionals that have clients that are looking for information or help about a situation, trying to assess it. And the reality, too, also to a degree, I find is because one of the things I didn't touch on, because we're in Quebec, which was predominantly historically a Catholic province, which it's tightly controlled in terms of the religion, social, political structures in place. 
it has a, an incredible impact in terms of what's going on now because Quebec is often seen as a very fertile terrain for the emergence of all kinds of new groups, spiritual and other, because many people in Quebec have turned their back on the Catholic Church because of the authoritarian nature of how it functioned in the past, which raises an interesting question that people have become, one could say, a bit more prone to following into other kind of controlling environments, but at the same time, having turned their back on a certain belief, still need to believe and belong to something, which makes the appeal of some of these new movements you know, kind of attractive, which sets our province apart than from, what I say, other places in North America. And the language is also a factor. And also media-wise, if I go on to that, is the media tends to treat this issue very differently in French than it does in English. Really? The English is much more calmer and softer. I mean, now with, uh, you know, I have to backpedal a bit now because of the Nexium case, because the English media is covering the Nexium cases. I think every second word in the title has sex cult in it. You know, or like that, which is like you know, uh, understandable in terms of how media kinds of focus on it. Because kind of, you know, the reality, I guess, and it's kind of frustrating sometimes for me is like you, people are looking for simple labels. In some cases, it may be very appropriate the terms they're using, but in many cases, it does not help to understand the phenomena. Yeah, I mean, it, it can be an oversimplification. Of course, it's to get attention as well. But when you have terms like sex cult, you know. Yeah, that was part of it. But then when you have people who are leaving it and then they say, oh, I, I had been a member of Nexium," then people say, oh, the sex cult, which is just adds sort of shame and embarrassment of them telling their story. So it's it's a hard thing. Well, you also raise an interesting question. is like people coming out of some of these groups where they spend a lot of years of their life. I had one woman, it reminds me, came out of a very extreme group. And I said, what do I put in my CV? For all these years, you know, because because this was a group that if you put down in your CV you were involved in this group, it was clear you weren't going to get get a job or an offer. You'd be you'd be probably very nicely told to very interesting. Don't call us; we'll call you. But you know, because I I I always tell people you don't want to lie, but in many cases you can put down things. In this case, it was a woman who worked in a, in a group and that had a bakery. So I said, what was the name of the bakery? Because the name of the bakery wasn't well known. So you put down the name of the bakery and you worked as a bake in the bakery, which is not lying. It's just not having to reveal everything. The same way like you're saying with Nexium. It's like, you know, if you have to put down, let's say you spent 10 years with Nexium, yeah, you're, you're probably these days you're not going to get very much like kind of offers of jobs. However, she, people in the group probably did things like running companies or doing publicity, or, you know, or preparing materials, whatever. So there's a way to, I think, describe your experience in a way which is truthful without revealing everything. You know? But you're right, it can be very difficult for somebody coming out. You, know, so you were in a cult. You know? What's wrong with you? you know? That still, still goes on. Went on when I first started, and unfortunately it's still something that happens today. You know, people look slightly askew at individuals who come out of groups that are perceived by others as kind of weird or strange. You know? The implication being is you must be weird or strange as well. You know? mm, which is so hard, just adds insult to injury, which is so, so difficult. I'm curious just to, to find out from your perspective, I know the catalyst was the, the story that you started with, with rescuing this person. Uh, but what is it that keeps you involved in this? What is it that kind of speaks to you to this degree that makes you stay with it? 
Uh, part of it is because I guess I also got a fair amount of positive, re, re, you know, reinforcement from a lot of people who call. You know, I mean, what I like the most, I guess, of what I do is I like talking to people you know, and dealing with situations as they arise, and whether it be family-related cases or just providing information or discussing the issue at large and, you know, presenting my perspective or views and listening to other people. So I get a lot of positive reinforcement because many people kind of, you know, may have come in with certain kind of preconceived notions and leave saying thanks. You know, yeah, it makes sense. I guess part of what I work very differently, I guess, than other people. I, I look at things at a very kind of base level. When when I look at, like, why do people join groups, you know, so I don't get into all, you know, you know is it brainwashing, et cetera. I, sometimes for me, simply when I'm explaining things and it seems to resonate with people is I look at things as why do people join, for example? Well, you can get into all the techniques and manipulation and blah, blah, blah. But the bottom line is to me, people join because there's a connection. It's like a love relationship. And I always kind of love the expression falling in love, love is blind. Because you meet a group, it seems to respond to everything you've been looking for. You're joining because it responds to emotional needs and things you feel comfortable with. So, you know, to get into a logical or intellectual discussion with someone who's joined the group is like saying, you know, to somebody like, Rachel, what are you doing with that guy you're living with? He's an asshole. Mm -hmm. And you're going, gee, Mike, I didn't know that. Thanks for telling me I'm leaving him now. and I'll go look for another guy tomorrow. Not going to work. But you're looking at similar dynamics, you know. And so for me, a lot of that is like what I find interesting at the same time what I find interesting in the work I do is the ability to have, you know, I guess the ability to move around and have made contacts with colleagues and individuals around the world with different perspectives and positions, and, which is always, I find very stimulating. It helps me to recognize, you know, that it's a constant kind of pursuit in terms of when you say pursuit of knowledge, you're always pursuing information, better understanding, recognizing that there's always more you can learn and more you can understand about groups or situations. And I say groups because a book that we wrote here, we published, I think for us symbolizes our approach, which is it's titled The Cult Phenomena, How Groups Function. So at the base is we're looking at how groups are functioning and the impact they can have on people. As looking the same way we look at people and recognize people, the different positions and views exist on a continuum, the groups also exist on a continuum as well. And people like groups can and most often do change. And so that to, you know, and that's why I find interesting is that, you know, people that, you know, may have had views that were very opposed to, let's say, views that we have and that some of the people I work with have, have also changed. Because why? Because they decided that it does pay to sit and talk even with people you may not totally or think you totally don't agree with. The same way that I find stimulating is I've met many members of groups who I have had relationships with, even in certain groups which I don't necessarily think are the greatest group in the world, but the people themselves are nice people. And they may be there for totally different reasons than other people. The same way I say is like you meet people in any kind of movement or group. Some are nice, some are not so nice. Some are in groups that are much more, let's say, more closed and open, but you still have the sense of humanity that exists in them, no matter what group they're in. The same way as I can look at movements 
and you know that are extreme and some people who are, you sit there and they're a group member and you go well i wonder how they can maintain their existence because they're a little too free-spirited but who knows you know everybody's got their own limits and every group has margins what i call margins of maneuverability there can be let's say a limit to which you can maneuver within the group but some people are really in totally inside the margin others are right close to the edge and some go over it every so often and do what they want. You know, it's like if you read some of the stuff, you know, there's another side note to that, to why you can't assume everybody's the same in a group. There's a couple of articles that came out, one dealing, I think, with uh, Hasidic, uh, Hasidic Jews and looked at those who are members who no longer believe. I mean, obviously, go public, but they talked about how they no longer believe, but that they're staying because. They're married, they have kids, their whole communities there, et cetera, but they no longer believe. So would you classify these people as the same as somebody who's an extreme believer, you know, and may do things that are representative of that extreme belief, whereas here's somebody who's probably just towing the line and just giving a good facade. I believe there was another story that came out not that long ago about pastors who also who run churches who no longer believe either. It just kind of symbolizes there may be exaggerations to how many don't believe and maintain, but I think it reinforces the notion that you cannot generalize when you're looking at any group or assume. But you know, it doesn't, like I say, take away from the fact that there is a lot of harm that groups do and can cause as well. Mm-hmm. You know, it, when you're talking about pastors, it's suddenly reminding me of a story uh, of a, a man who I worked with who was involved in a Korean-based, Bible-based group. And he had reached the point of, uh, or the title of deacon within the group. And he had also recruited a lot of people. And um, about two years before he was able to leave, because his whole family was involved, um, he really stopped believing. Because he got to know the leaders. And he saw the lavish lifestyle that they had when everyone else was suffering and uh, giving over all their money to pay for their mansions and feasts. And he was afraid when he was leading these uh, services that he would reveal somehow that he wasn't a believer anymore and he wasn't quite ready to do that. So he found some ways that were probably more subtle than people kind of picked up on, but that when he would be reading from the Bible as written by the leadership, he would try to add a little kind of up note at the end of the sentence, like it was a question rather than a statement. Because he was trying to encourage people to say, hmm, you know, like maybe, maybe not. And so, and I think also in the way that he was slowing down his recruitment and saying he was busy now doing other things, he was trying to find a way to express what he was feeling and also do some education and prevention. He doesn't know if it made that kind of impact, but he was really struggling, really struggling for those two years. He said those are the hardest two years of his life, having these dual personalities. And that's actually leads to something that we do get every so often, members of groups who call, who are questioning and want to talk. And one of the things I tell people for sure is I can't tell you to stay or to leave, that's up to you, but I can help you maybe in terms of looking at some of the issues you have, as well as some people who basically say, I want to leave, how do I leave? You know, 
because some people want to leave dramatically. Some people, some people still want to maintain member, you know, affiliations they have with people. So there's different things that go on that I think are not necessarily known to the public. It is also good to get word definitions uh, from them. What do they mean by that? It was a loving group. How was that expressed? Was that through abuse uh, or was that through love? And, um, and also a lot of people coming out don't know that they've been abused because they don't know what the definition is. So you can offer them a lot of opportunities to really express it in a way that people would understand, but to not take what they're saying and interpret it the way you would in your own life. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's one of the things I also do as well is like, say, what do you mean by what is that? Because it's the same thing when you say discipline. Well, you may be hitting, you know, you may be hitting somebody with a stick, you know, but that's to maybe their definition of discipline, you know, and unless you pursue it, how is the discipline carried out as well as what are people disciplined for? You know, it's like, exactly. It's like really getting sure when you say we love everyone. Well, what is, what do you mean by love everyone? Then you find out, well, we love some people more than others. And well, I can't really love you because you're not part of our group. You know, so it's like, you know, hey, you're right. And I think that's, you know, uh, an important thing to keep in mind when if you really want to find out what's going on it's like saying we have a choice well choice implies well what are your options if your options is between following the group and following what is perceived of as satan well i don't know how many too many group members are going to follow satan so but they have a choice well but so unless you find out what that implies it sounds good you know but unless you pursue it, you may find that, well, wait a second, that's a bit more, you know, that's not what I consider choice. Like choosing between life and death, I don't know how many people can choose death. But unless you ask the questions, you're not going to find out. But you just assume that makes sense. Oh, you've got choice. That's great. Right. And I think a lot of leaders, also same thing with uh controlling partners, they'll often use that word that you have a choice to stay here or to go. But there are all these other messages that let you know that really it would be so unsafe for you to go or you would be losing an opportunity to have a relationship with God or whatever else. Or no one will ever love you the way I love you. But sure, feel free to go. And so, you know, you're kind of, you're you're trapped while at the same time being told, sure, the door is open. Anytime you want to go, you can go. And um, most people have been so conditioned and also socially conditioned. You know, they, they hear these stories a lot of the time about what happens to people after they leave, you know, a lot of these made-up stories. Well, yeah, because be, it's not like you're going to check it out because the thing is, if you're in a group like that, you know, just the thought of wanting to check it out means you don't believe what's been, been told. And, you know, so you basically assume, yeah. It's, you know, and another message that a lot of people get is when you think of leaving or you after you've left, I don't know if you get this, but a lot of people who left kind of extreme religious groups feel that they've left God. And so my question to them is like, I've never met anybody, former, no former member in 40 years I've talked to has ever called me to say they've left God. They've uh -huh. always said the same thing. I've left my group. Mm. So I say to them, it's like, well, you know, if you want to leave God, that's your, that's your choice. You can do that if you want. But all I've ever heard is people tell me they left the group. The question is, who's told you you left God? Usually you say, oh, they've told me. I say, Unless you get a long distance call from God, I say, all you know is you left the group. I like that. I like that. Okay. I think that's a great place to end off for today. And I thank you for 
for all of your time and your wisdom and also for this organization that has been around now for a significant amount of time offering so much information and that you are um you're open to and interested in hearing people's stories and sharing your information with a lot of expertise a lot of patience a lot of compassion um and so it's very nice to be able to to spend time to see you um on camera and just to speak with you and get to know more about you and your experiences and what you know it's a pleasure thank you for your invitation rachel one more thing before you go. Mike Kropfeld is an impressive guy, a busy guy. He's also very knowledgeable and truly dedicated. And the way he got into this field is something I wanted to talk about briefly. He said a friend got into a cult and he rallied together with others to see what they could do during a time when finding information was nearly impossible and finding professionals who knew how to help was also nearly impossible. They followed the experts they found when the going thinking at the time was to kidnap people out of a situation they had been kidnapped into, basically. We do it very differently in the field now, but at the time that was often offered as the only option. Mike's dedication to saving a friend prompted his interest in being able to not only help this friend, but to be able to help others in these predicaments. And that turned into the development of a whole organization, which is now supported by the government and helps thousands of people. He has amassed an extraordinary amount of information since the days of needing to rely on limited research to help rescue a friend or a loved one. And it's the same with many of us in the field who were and still are at times finding our way without budgets, without protection from harassment. But now with the ability to utilize more research and incorporate more information that's been collected and shared over time. I think about all the different movements that have been started by people making their way in the dark initially and all the people who have felt driven to find answers and cures for others. But because of a lack of information or just limited resources, they didn't know where to begin. So they just started with what they had and hoped it worked out and hope to perfect their craft over time in order to help people more effectively. I think of the people who have been able to figure out a way to start cleaning our oceans and find alternative energy sources and respond to issues like radicalization and cyberbullying and sex trafficking with great perseverance and ingenuity and sometimes with shoestring budgets and often with pushback from people who say, there's no need for you to do anything because it's really not a problem or pushback from people who say it's too big of a problem to fix or the way you want to go about fixing it will never work. And there are so many issues to address out there, but sometimes there is no manual yet that says exactly how to address it in every situation. And that's why it's so important to work collaboratively so we all know more. Share what you've learned, share what you know, share what you've discovered and researched, and be open to learning from others. In this field alone, we incorporate information from lawyers and law enforcement, government officials, sociologists, therapists, psychiatrists and psychologists, social psychologists, industrial psychologists, historians, trauma specialists, neurologists, child development specialists, academics, researchers, private investigators, former cult members, and former partners of controllers, just to name a few. 
In order for us to be effective, the information we all have accrued should never be seen as proprietary, at least that's my opinion. And that is one of the reasons that I started this podcast. On a large scale and on a small scale, mistakes are made when we're not working together. When the ATF, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, took over responding to the siege of the Branch Davidian cult in Waco and didn't necessarily always listen to the professionals, things escalated. Now, they are not responsible for David Koresh, the leader's actions, when the whole place tragically went up in flames, and I don't think it would have ended well no matter what. But the ATF blasted very loud and harsh sounds to scare people out, and all that did was prove the leader right about how the world is outside, that it's a scary and unsafe place, and that you're safer inside with him. And when law enforcement is called in by loved ones to rescue someone from a situation or a relationship with an emotional abuser where there aren't necessarily outward signs of abuse, and it's a situation they potentially can't get themselves out of on their own, but the only question the police person asks about the person who may be a prisoner there is if she or he is 18 or older, and if the answer is yes, that's the end of their investigation. They are forfeiting in that moment the chance to save someone, and they're making the family member and potentially the loved one caught inside feeling hopeless and helpless because it's actually not their fault, but that's all they've been trained to do because the people training them are not working with others who understand those situations. And when a member of the clergy dismisses that a group is dangerous because it seems or sounds like it's part of the same denomination, but then they don't do any further research to find out how this group is actually dangerous. Or when a former cult member gets the courage to see a therapist and starts to share their story, but the therapist keeps skirting and avoiding that issue because that's not their area of expertise and they don't have the interest to learn about it. They and we all do a disservice to those who need our help. So if you have a story to share or information to impart that ties in with the themes of this podcast that can help others stay safe out there and help us all work together, let me know at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. I would love to have people learn from your research or your experience. Talk to you next week. Indoctrination is available for download on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Subscribers receive bonus episodes, interviews, and other cool goodies. Send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support. And if you can't become a paid subscriber, I will be so grateful for any and all support that you show. Whether it's subscribing on SoundCloud, YouTube, or Patreon, or giving us a like on our Indoctrination Facebook page or following our Twitter and Reddit feeds. Thank you for keeping up with us and for keeping the show going. Until next time, Rachel. Rachel.